I'm Jack Zemlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2020 Strip-Till Farmer Podcast Series, supported by AgriSolutions. In today's program, we learn about some of the on-farm experiments being conducted in southeastern Minnesota to build soil health and improve farm profitability. If this is your first time joining us, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and Spotify. And a reminder that by subscribing, you will be able to get an alert when upcoming episodes in this series are released. Thanks again to AgriSolutions. AgriSolutions is the market leader in wearable parts, components, accessories, and solutions for tillage, seeding, planting, fertilizing, hardware, and inventory management solutions. Improve performance and durability with a wide range of in-field solutions to advance your strip-till system. To learn more about AgriSolutions and their three main brands, Belota, Ingersoll, and Trinity Logistics, visit agrisolutionscorp.com. Well, learning by doing has always been a philosophy applied by Rock Creek, Minnesota farmer John Stevens on his 700-acre operation. Moving from years of conventional tillage practices to no-till and strip-till starting in 2013, John embraces the systematic approach to building soil health while understanding that farm profitability doesn't necessarily mean being the highest yielding farmer. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast, supported by AgriSolutions, we share excerpts from my conversation with John during a recent visit to his Maple Creek Farms operation, where he talks about his transition into strip-till and recent reintroduction of cattle back onto the farm. We were a moldboard plowed disc gripper full tillage until 2013. And then in 13, we're kind of a granule, large granule, coarse soil that, that gets drought prone very quick, but then it compacts very quick. Um, so we wouldn't have compaction down deep, you'd have all this shallow compaction. And so I just, I asked dad one time, we were over on that East 90 and I said, well, what if we just don't, it's soybeans, what if we just no-till? Cause there was like a random guy once in a while would try some no-till around here and you'd read about it. So we're like, well, let's just try it once. So we did it in 13 and that was the first year we had mapping in the combine and there was no difference. Like where it burnt up, it burnt up the same. So we're like, okay, well, there's no difference except we didn't have all this labor into it. Well, then 2014 came and that was the worst spring we had for decades. Super late. I remember we had a lot of seed in the ground that got snowed on and a lot of 30 and 35 degree rains. And we had a September 11th frost. And I remember going out, so the soil, you go to the beach, and if you take your fingers and you stir that sand in the beach, mm-hmm. it, it, and then step in it, it's mush. But if you let the water lap it a couple times and you hit it, it's firm. So that's what was happening. I'd take the, the four-wheel drive and the digger, and the four-wheeler's carrying nice, and you take the digger and you'd work it. And then when you got to the end of the, or your corners and you, you drive over what you just worked, well, then the digger and the four-wheeler would just sink way in, just mush. And I'm like, well, this is stupid. And you're trying to work it up. And then the next rain comes. So everything you just worked is wet. So we got to warm and dry it again. And you're like, this is stupid. I told dad, like, we're never going to get anything planted. Mm-hmm. Like, like 
all we're doing is tilling this field in between rains. So then I said, well, what if we just take and plant the field where we can? You know, we have mapping, so let's just drive until it's a wet spot, turn around. And so by the time we got done, if you pulled up like a date planted, it looked like a patchwork quilt. Like you got this chunk and then this chunk. But by gosh, that fall we had average corn and that was the first year we had 48 bushel beans. And all the other neighbors were mad because I remember them at the elevator just cussing, you know, 30 and 35 bushel beans and because they had this heavy ground and we had this light ground. And I'm like, we, we have the same mm -hmm. soil kind of. It's different, but it's the same. So then in 15, we built our first strip-till rig. We bought an old sook-up cultivator, and I just extended the shank down, and then we put it on an old uh, ag systems built out of Hutchinson, Minnesota with a Montag box on it. You know, they, they used to build these machines, these fertilizer machines. Yep. So we just put it on the back of that. It worked fantastic. Like the concept of strip-till, like the row units, we needed some work to do there for our rocks that row crop unit wasn't heavy enough, mm -hmm. but the concept worked really well. In, f in 2015, we had spot, oh, I had trials everywhere. Uh, on soybeans, we had no-till beans, no-till beans with normal fertilizer, strip-till beans, strip-till with normal fertilizer, strip-till beans with corn fertilizer. And it was hilarious because the strip-till beans, so 15 was probably one of the greatest years we had in history. One of the few years we've ever hauled off of the field to an elevator. You got to remember up here, probably once about every five years we have to dry soybeans. Mm -hmm. You got Lake Superior to our north, Lake Mille Lacs to our west. It really affects our climate. Uh, to be 10 degrees cooler than the Twin Cities is not uncommon. Mm -hmm. So to haul corn off the field to market was like, whoa! Uh, you could see it. You could see it with that year and that great of opportunity. The no-till versus strip-till corn, like, like, uncomparable. So what, what did you see? I mean, you mentioned all the different trials you did. I mean, how On the soybeans, the best cash flow was still the no-till beans with no fertilizer. Okay because the beans really don't respond to fertility. We, we know that. Yep. Um, so cash flow, clearly the no-till beans just out cash flowed by a large margin. Uh, the fertility side, you could argue, well, they did remove some P and K, so we have to account for them dollars, but it's still cash flowed. The strip-till beans where there was corn, had we had an early frost that year, the strip-till beans were farther enough in growth stage that at one point, if you would have had the perfect timing frost, the strip-till beans would have been a very good harvestable crop, and the no-till beans could have been uh, a highly docked or highly damaged crop because there would have been a lot of green yet. But since the year was so great, everybody point that strip-till bean was just massive, like holy crap. So yield-wise, I mean, how did those kind of out if you remember i mean where they yield wise where i remember that uh, that was probably the first time we ever went into the 60s on beans okay. uh where the strip till corn was and then the but then that year uh even the no-till with no fertilizer was like 50 and so we're like whoa best day ever i think county average on beans at that time was like 25 or 27. keep in mind our county just broke 100 bushel on corn mm -hmm the other year for a county average. This isn't where you come to, to set world records. So then in 16, 
We use the strip till bar again. How big of a unit? This is an eight row. Eight row, okay. And so we use it again on the corn ground and move to no-till on the beans. The funny part is the no-till and conventional till, the yield maps are almost identical. Where it's a wet spot, it's a wet spot in no-till and conventional till. And this, keep in mind, this is transitioning soil, not good healthy soil. So it's still trying to heal. And, but the, the, the funny part is, is the neighbors would drive by and they'd see that bad spot and they well see that's that's why you don't no-till here because no-till don't work you see that bad spot yeah no-till don't work but then we go to their field and you drive by and like well what about your bad spots oh yeah wasn't that a tough year that was a heck of a year wasn't it like don't i get a heck of a year and and so they would they would laugh actually i would laugh and they would look confused but strip till, now there's spots in the fields over here where you get some, I call them little death valleys or death knobs, that with no-till and conventional till, if the rest of the field is 120, 130 bushel corn, them spots will be 20, 30%. Um, you know, you're talking 40, 50 bushel corn, uh, 10, 15 bushel beans, when the rest of the field is just like, ha, oh, oh, ha, oh, oh. And with strip till, now we're several years into healing soil and cover cropping and stuff. Strip till in them same spots, now our yields are at like 70, 75, 80% of field average. Them, them red spots on the harvest map went from these big pancakes to these little tiny odd shaped pieces. And you're like, holy crap, we're really onto something here. And then immediately on day one, we cut P and K in half because University of Minnesota already did all that research for us. Mm -hmm. So there's no need to do research. They already did that. So on day one, I cut P and K in half, strip till compared to conventional till, you save your $40 an acre in tillage costs. And AMS, I was, I was super surprised that we were able to get by with just, uh, just over half of AMS. So when we were full tillage, AMS, you would have to put 50 to 60 pounds in front of the planter, mm -hmm. and then you had to come back with another 50 to 60 pounds uh, top dress with your urea. If you tried to skip one of them, you knew it. If you tried to skip the pre-plant, by top dress time, the corn was striping. If you tried to skip that one, by late season, the corn is striping. It, it was a very good economic payback, you know, our ROI on the 100 to 120 pounds of AMS. But when we put the AMS into strip, we put 70 pounds in strip and never came back with any more AMS. And we never saw striping. Then we ended up using more AMS as a nitrogen, you know, started replacing urea. So then we started adding more anyhow. But to me, that floored me. And you did that from the start? From day one of strip till. How deep were you? Were you Eight inches. Eight inches, okay. Eight inches. So then with the problems of that strip till bar, we got to do something better. Mm -hmm. So the neighbor had an old hinnaker with the chisel plow unit, that big heavy bugger. So I modified that. I just took the berming discs off the DMI, the disc ripper. I, the only thing I modified was I added a row cleaner and flip the gauge wheel upside down to go deep enough. Otherwise you already had a coulter, you had the shank, and then we just bolted a piece of pipe to the shank for our fertilizer. And now that sucker worked. Well, you could bang rock, that thing, that thing just worked. So I got a video of him over in West Rock behind the 8450. Dad loves it behind the 8450. 
he just loves it. And we had the auto steer at the time in that. Mm -hmm. So it shows them going through that. We had just acquired that field of just highly abused. Oh, that field was worked down to spec mix, just powder. And that, yeah, the video going through there, he's doing five, six miles an hour and just <laughs> making this beautiful, beautiful berm. The only thing is that two inch wide shank can't go into sod because we couldn't go into sod very well. We were having fairly good luck with the no-till. We just really moved a more acres to the no-till side. When I can afford it, I would like to get an honest 12 row strip till bar for the fertility management, especially when you pick up new ground. If you can cut your P and K in half, reduce the risk of if you lose the ground, you're not out so much because you're only feeding your crop. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you really wanted to on these one year contract lands, if you really wanted to run a 20% rate, literally just a couple pounds of P and K, feed this crop, and, and if you lose the land next year, you're out nothing. I like what the strip till does. So in our, in these fields that are transitioning, um, so it looks like beach sand. Once it's had a couple driving rains on it, it fails water infiltration big time. That yellow, so we got nine inches of top, or we have nine inches of topsoil. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we got 40 feet of yellow clay. And once that clay settles down in the summertime, there ain't a drop of water getting through it. Mm -hmm. People put tile down because they think we're Iowa or Western or, you know, black dirt, Minnesota, but it don't work mm -hmm. because it, there's no percolation. So after three hours on one of them rain testers, mm -hmm. you know, that, that yeah. ring, uh, yeah. that infiltration ring, yep. after three hours, we finally called it. We're like, screw it. It's, it's evaporating faster than it's going in the ground. So in that soil, that strip till was absolutely magnificent because it would tear through that compaction. And now you put your plants in there. So now the roots would just explode in that fluff because you could put your hand right up to your wrist in that fluff. And it, the plants grow the roots in there. It would take all year for that to even set up a little bit. But every rain we have, that water would just run into them, go into them channels. So the seedlings, stayed drier but then on wet years that's almost like a wick you know if you put like a piece of yarn over the edge of the glass it will wick the water into the other glass mm -hmm. that's almost what it acted like because it'd be bone dry and you'd go out there and under your residue in between the rows you had moisture and between the plants you'd scratch the dirt and there's moisture and you're like what the heck when we started really looking at it like them strip till fields are just square corn Square corn, no. And then we stopped messing with waterways and mud holes. So we brought ditch, we brought some grass waterways back. So instead of driving and fighting this stupid spot, lift up, either headland off or drive through and sit down on the other side. Because this spot yields nothing. You fertilize it, you seed it, and you get nothing back. What's the point? Right. Why, why stress? Right over this quarter acre out of this 40. Why, why stress about it? We all don't have to have perfect square fields. You know, that sounds goofy, but it's true. And that helped a lot. We'll get back to the discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, AgriSolutions, for making this podcast possible. Improve performance and durability with a wide range of in-field solutions 
to advance your strip-till system. To learn more about AgriSolutions and their three main brands, Belota, Ingersoll, and Trinity Logistics, visit agrisolutionscorp.com. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from John Stevens on how he's combined cover crops and cattle grazing to improve soil health. So cover crops were just kind of an experiment of like, yeah, they tell me we're supposed to try it. So when, I, when they were trying to teach me about cover crops, I was still pretty conventional. From 2015 to now, we had still used the moldboard plow at some point in this time frame. Mm-hmm. So that's how fast we've evolved. We went from trying cover crops. We have 60 inch corn out there with such a massive, massive cover crop inside that if the ears fell off and the corn stayed standing, feed value alone would would be the profit out there. We've got AUM credits uh, in that 60 inch corn. Uh, well, not even an AUM credit because people will argue like that's mythical because you can, you can fudge AUMs all you want sure. on the calculator, but days off of feed are real because that's bales that you're not feeding. Mm-hmm. That 60 inch corn, the minute I put the cows out there, there will be grazing until there's too much snow. They're, they will not run out of feed. That, that, the, so we went through a pretty hard drought this summer. Mm-hmm. So it was supposed to be a nice stand of buckwheat and Italian ryegrass and vetch uh, turned into foxtail. Foxtail, lamb's quarter, like the dry weather a whole lot better. Honest guy, I mean, that foxtail is up to your waist and it is, well, it's so big it lodged down. Mm. There is so much, there is a hay crop. There is a full scale hay crop in that 60 inch corn. And that 60 inch corn looks just as good as the conventional corn across the road. And it looks just as good as the 30 inch corn right next to it. Like, how does this work? Like something, something's happening in our soil and and so now we're to the point uh we brought cattle back even because we used to be dairy mm-hmm. now we brought beef cattle back because they're an integral part of it sure so how many uh, head do you have we bought not we're at nine okay we're at nine cows okay. we got we got five uh springer heifers to get bred here in the next couple of weeks okay. uh to really grow our herd next year and there's another four four or five new heifers out on pasture with mom right now. Okay. Uh, we retail the meat, um, you know, direct to friends and family, you know. Um, so what we're doing now is we're bringing back pastures. We're trying to stay a little higher legume content on our pastures. And I want to move my cover cropping to more perennials with legumes and eventually get to the point that strip till might have herbicide with it instead of doing a full burn down, we just burn down what the strip till does, put the residual where the strip till is, and we leave the legumes and grasses, perennials grow Mm -hmm. in between, and we take advantage of everything they have to offer. That's where we'll get to in another couple years. So that's how fast this thing is moving. And the other part is that fence is gonna keep working this way. So they only get that pasture for a couple years. We're gonna keep them up. That first pasture, we're gonna keep them up there a little longer because that soil just needs manure so bad. So I put bales out because I want them to once in a while go to there to get extra manure in them spots. Yeah, yeah. And what they don't poop, the, the hay decomposing will yep. become that manure too, you know? Sure, sure. And, then, and then eventually we get to the point that every couple years, the cows move just like another crop. Um, 
I don't know if we'll ever, ever, ever get to the point where the cows move year to year, mm -hmm. but if they're here for two years, boop, next year they come here, follow them with a grass or a corn that, that you know, take advantage of all the nitrogen credits. Mm -hmm. Like there's nothing wrong, corn is a fantastic, I love corn for our soil. There's, it sucks because there's not much price, but at the same point, if we're following cows or legumes on $3 corn, if our cost is 220, that's good corn. But on $3 corn right now, most everybody's cost is 301 or 320 or 350. Right. That's not good corn. Yeah. We tried low population beans. We did some no-till low pop beans behind the barn here the other year in 18. And the neighbors said, uh, how did that turn out? How did that turn out? I said, man, that cash flowed awesome. Just awesome. What did you guys plant? Like how, how low? I think we went to 100. Okay. Uh, and normal around here, they told me for no-till, all the seed companies are like, yeah, you need to stay up at 170. I'm like, oh, okay. And at first I believed them. And then it's to the point like, well, how do you know? You know, I started, as I started moving down this soil health journey, the biggest thing I learned was start to question the status quo. So you go to these seed sales things and like, well, if you're going to try no-till, you really got to up that population because your germination is going to be so bad. Well, why would my germination be bad? Well, just cause, you know, the soil's different and blah, 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 blah. What are you, at first, you know, the first couple of years, you're like, sure. oh, it makes sense. Yeah. Then after a while, you're like, you can't even back that statement up with the slightest lie, let alone a fact. Like if you would have said like, oh, because of grub or wireworm or, you know, things we had issues with, but we easily controlled it. Mm -hmm. um, if they would have said something like that, then you would have been like, oh, well, that makes sense. But but once you started questioning them and they couldn't answer, then you're like, oh, okay, okay, we're done here. Great conversation. Let's have a beer sometime, but we're done talking shop. Yeah. And so when I told them, ah, cash flowed great, it just bothered them. Just bothered them that I didn't talk in yield. Mm -hmm. Nobody talks cash flow. And, and that's my whole thing of this. Like, aren't we putting dollars in? So shouldn't we talk dollars out? I always joke with with people all your neighbors claim and brag these big huge yields up so shouldn't they be bragging about money next year instead of being like, oh yeah you know every fall oh 200 bushel corn 200 bushel corn great the next spring they ought to be like thank god we had all that corn because look at all this money a new tractor do, do, do. no next spring they're right back to market suck what are we going to do this year well i thought i thought the last five years of big corn yeah. made you a lot of money but apparently 200 bushel don't make you money when it costs you 201 and the banker don't care mm -hmm. no banker has ever been like oh you got you got 30 bushel above average well debt pardoned like no there's great you should be able to pay ahead of time borrow more money but it, it don't work that way yeah now we pick up new land you go in with the soil health methods you know maybe the field needs a rollover with a mole board we're not here to judge. You're just here to, what does this field need? Mm -hmm. it, it's different than that field in, in how it needs to be managed because maybe it's got a, a dry spot or that field's flat and puddles, this field runs off. You know, that kind of thing. We still just, we just manage that field and we just right off the top, reduce the tillage as best we can. And so these old sod fields that we're picking up, they're already nice and smooth. So you walk out there, there's no reason to till it because it's smooth. You take a soil probe, you push the soil probe down there well, there's no reason to till it because there's no compaction. The thing has already had all these years of mineralization. It isn't the healthiest of soil because it's always been mowed. It's, 
you know, just because it hasn't had tillage doesn't mean it's soil health. They do okay. They do okay. Nobody understands, like, everybody's like, well, what, how does that yield? And so you tell them on the corn, like, yeah, that field went like 140. And they're just like, oh, pfft. yeah, no way of making that. And I'm like, well, what'd your field do across the road? Well, the field across the road did like 155. I'm like, yeah, so I made more money. Whoa, how? Because I'm like, well, on $3 corn, the first 20 bushels that you got went to pay for your tillage. After that, we're both pretty equal. Oh, I forgot to say on the strip till thing, once we saw how AMS responded, so then we moved our nitrogen program to the sprayer and we started abandoned with the sprayer with just some cheap homemade Y drops. Okay. That really brought that no-till up. Is it because if we take this sod, we terminate it, and if we broadcast, is that two inches of all them roots absorbing all that nitrogen and holding it and using it for life and not getting it to our corn? Mm -hmm. But all I know is by banding that nitrogen next to that corn, oh boy, does it take off. What kind of sprayer do you guys have? You an old, an old LND. Sure. Just an old LND. Someday it'd be nice to have a fancy one. Yeah, the drop hoses are still hanging on them. I just took 3 8 fuel line and duct taped it into an X and that made a Y drop. When are you guys going in with that typically to make that application? So that was another big learning thing is moving from conventional till to no-till was our timing application. We had to be a lot more early on timing because we lost that CO2 release and that flush of nutrients from tillage, we lost that. So on the no-till while we're transitioning, I'm going back to in-furrow. So we usually, I try to go in somewhere fairly early with the first pass, you know, V2, V3, and then come with the side dress. Yeah and then uh, go back in V4, V5, a couple weeks later, you know, two, three weeks later, and finish it. I wouldn't mind doing it all in one pass, other than it seems like the, the, the management of it. To drive over there to do a field once today, one trip or two trips today, and then in a couple weeks, you get caught up on other chores. Sure. You do another couple trips, and so it, it works really good to be flexible. As long as we have it all on before V6, V7, we're doing good. It, there really isn't a perfect schedule. V2, V3, we start, and depending on the weather and just depending how it goes, mm -hmm. it, in a perfect world, you get two things, but sometimes it drags, you know? What are you guys putting in? 28% with some amthiol. Okay. Gosh, it works. Boy, I'll tell you what, when you had strip till with some urea and AMS, and then we did the Amthio 28%. That corn was as green as grass going into fall. Like you look at the corn across the road where they put in all their nitrogen ahead of planter, that corn like this time of year starts firing on the bottom. And over the next several weeks, you'll see it really start to yellow fast. Mm -hmm. That other corn was just green as grass. So then I'm starting to think basic math. If by banding versus broadcast, we have 70% better coverage. Mm -hmm. You know, you got an easy 70% wasted space because out of a 30 inch row, you got a plant on each side. Well, each plant only has a five inch root zone coming in. So that means you still have 20 inches of kind of wasted space. That That's kind of what I'm saying, two, sure. two thirds. So it'd be more, so it was 60% wasted. I haven't tried it yet, but does that mean our nitrogen is 30, 40, 50% more effective in a band. So can we can we pull back 
30%? Can we pull back 40%? Do we dare pull back 60%? I think it'd be pretty cool to start trying now that we're getting some confidence. And we tried, so this past year we finished, so we learned how to finish, or we, we were trying to fine tune or learn how to do better with steers okay. on grazing. So we had steers out here, 18, with some legumes and grasses. And then last year we put corn out here. So we did 25, 50, 75, and 100% of recommended nitrogen rate. The 25% applied still made 75% yield. Now it didn't cash flow as good as the other stuff. It didn't cash flow as good as, cause we always get a good bang for the buck on nitrogen. Mm -hmm. But the fact that 25% of applied nitrogen made that good of a crop, if we would have went across the road and done a full tillage program, put corn in and full herbicide program, but only put in 25% of our nitrogen at the pre-plant or, or, you know, at, at, well, even as a side dress, that, that corn would have been, you know, miserable little, it would have been nothing. Right. It would have been nothing. Not seven, not this big, beautiful crop that there's the proof in our own mind that the covers, the cattle, crop rotation is where our money's gonna be and how we're gonna be here. Mm -hmm. And then cereals, we brought back small grains. So this was my first year really trying a large scale of cereal rye and it's miserable because everybody else thought the same thing because Wisconsin's mandated for cover crops. Right. Right across the river here. Oh, this spring, the co-ops were begging for winter rye. $7 a bushel, $7 a bushel. All right. So I, I had all this winter rye that I was just gonna roll down and put beans and corn into. Well, on $7 rye, like who in their right mind would terminate that crop? Right. Apparently everybody thought the same thing because when we combine the rye and I started calling the co-ops, they're like, we're full. We're full, Every, the Twin Cities are full, the, metro, the the little elevators up here are full, in Wisconsin they're full, they're like, but hopefully in a couple of weeks when guys start, you know, we're still two to three weeks ahead of the rye season. Yeah. Hopefully when they get going, then maybe some seed can start moving. Sure, sure. It, uh, the dirty buggers. <laughs> but yeah, what do you do, you know? You guys strip tilling in the fall? Nope, in the spring. spring. Okay. Yep. Yeah. It works works beautiful in the spring. Yep. And now a lot of our P and K source is coming from the manure because we still, just because of how animals rotate, we want to keep the steers a little separate from the cows for right now because we're mm -hmm. still trying to learn this whole finished beef on grass and covers. Sure. So until we get that more perfected. So we got manure coming off the feedlot and we got turkey manure. So we can apply turkey manure as our P and K source and just and just take advantage of some of the nitrogen credits. But otherwise we've really reduced commercial purchase P and K and the crops are still doing good. Well, thank you, John, for letting me visit with you on your farm and share with us some of the experiments and lessons learned adopting strip till into your operation. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, AgriSolutions, for helping make this Strip-Till Farmer podcast series possible. And I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. You can also keep up on the latest Strip-Till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free Strip-Till Strategies daily e-blast, 
And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Striptill, F-A-R-M-R, and on our Striptill Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again for the next episode in our 2020 podcast series. For John Stevens, AgriSolutions, and our entire staff here at Strip Till Farmer, I'm Jack Zemlicka. Thanks for listening. <laughs>